That was the main motivation really, was wanting to find out for myself. I was there for the first time for two weeks and then I came back and I thought, oh, I don't think I can look away from this. Welcome to a brand new episode of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital and change. I'm Zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast is all about leadership and brings you interviews with leaders who we believe are driving a positive change in the world. Change comes in many forms and we're equally interested in speaking to leaders who are making incremental change and shifting the dial within their organisations as we are speaking about huge systemic changes that impact the world of work. The driving force of our podcast is to share these stories across sectors and industries so that we can all learn from each other. And this week, we're sharing a conversation with Matilda De La Torre, the author and founder of Conversations from Calais, a fantastic project that shares refugee stories from the Calais refugee camps. So you first mentioned this to me as an Instagram project. I think it started back in 2018. Um, And so this was a fantastic opportunity to speak to Matilda just as her book was released three and a half years later. So what can readers expect from the book? The book collates a number of posters of quotations taken from the conversations Matilda had with refugees on her visit to the Calais camps as a volunteer. Uh, She had pasted up posters around London neighbourhoods in order to raise awareness of these stories. And she then turned her work into an art book built around eight short essays from the likes of Nish Kumar and others about the refugee experience. I think I was most taken by Matilda's drive to find out more about the camps um, and her determination not to turn away from what she found there. Um, The book seems to be, I think, real testament to the hope and humanity that Matilda found there and is now seeking to share with the the rest of us through the book and on her platform on Instagram. And I think actually sharing this episode this week or at this time also shines a light on how anyone's circumstances can change radically, you know, suddenly, suddenly. and as we're seeing in today in Gaza, Palestine and Israel. Absolutely. It really challenges the idea, doesn't it, that it couldn't happen here. Uh, we're very lucky with the hand we've been dealt. But as Matilda's stories show, all of that can change in an instant and shouldn't be taken for granted. Absolutely. So should we go straight into it? Our conversation with Matilda. We hope this inspires you as much as it did us. We are very excited to welcome Matilda Delatore to Starts at the Top today. Matilda is a designer whose work focuses on co-designing projects and campaigns with local communities. She's interested in creating ways to transition to a sustainable, fair and joyful society. Her background is in the charity sector, which led her to create the global art movement Conversations from Calais and to publish her first book, Conversations from Calais, Sharing Refugee Stories. She is now working for a social enterprise as a community manager, creating sustainable events with grassroots organisations. Matilda, welcome to Starts at the Top. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. And as I was reading your bio, I was thinking, gosh, there's a lot of crossover with many of the things that we've explored on the podcast previously, and also crossover into the different parts of the charity sector that Paul and I are variously involved in. Uh, So congratulations on the book. It's very exciting. How do you feel? Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Good. It, It feels real now. It's been out for about a month. So I feel like, okay, it's happening. It's out into the world. 
it, it, it's out of my hands now. So yeah, it's really nice. I, I yesterday, no, last week I went to my public library in Tower Hamlets and I saw it like on the shelves of the new ends in the public library. And to me, that was success. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> that's so cool. So what yeah. did you do? Did you say to the librarian, this is my book? Uh, no, I stood there, took photos. This was like the same, the first time I saw it in a store, the first time I saw it in Waterstones. I had a little cry to myself and the woman was like, are you okay? Is everything fine? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I was just too embarrassed. Um, Oh, you didn't say anything? No, I just left. Um, But they must have this a lot, I'm thinking. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) Well, I I bet they don't have it every day. I mean, that's a very special thing when the author sees their book for the first time, isn't it? You see it on social, don't you? And that's Mm. lovely. You should um, start going in armed with a pen. I know the book is, you know, very much to put um, everybody else's stories forward, but you should go in armed with a pen and just sign them. Yeah, just, that's you know, true. Write a little note. Yeah, I will do that. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I still find it very odd when people ask me to sign their book in the first place. So I think doing it out of my own will feels a bit odd, but I'll get there. I'll get there. There's a secret message to the buyer. Exactly. It's a rite of passage as an author, isn't mm. it? So speaking of which, how did the book come about? Yeah, of course. So um, the the project is a project I started in 2019. And um, for anyone who isn't familiar with the project, it shares conversations between volunteers like myself um, and migrants, asylum seekers um, in Calais and, and in northern France that uh, we met whilst volunteering there and it shares these conversations um on walls uh primarily in london and and, and then in different cities around the world and as i said i started the project in 2019 and i've been sharing posters and still do on the street and pasting them up with these conversations for years Um, but during covid as we were all stuck inside our homes uh, or well Actually, not everyone was stuck in homes, but I had the privilege of, of, of having a home to be stuck into. And um, I realized I couldn't get out on the streets and I couldn't paste any conversations. And I, when I was really frustrated and it was at the time where you could go walk down the street, basically, just for like 15 minutes or something and then come back. I had covered my whole street. So they, it, it was a bit it felt like a bit um, redundant to keep pasting them there. Um, and at the same time, what was happening in Calais was still really, really getting worse and worse, but also getting less and less coverage in the media, right? Because obviously we were focusing on on, on COVID and all of that. So I thought I need to find a way to make an, uh, this archive more of a permanent collection. And, and, and I need to find a way to be able to create something that brings all these conversations together and brings photos of these conversations and is then able to integrate spaces like schools, offices, book clubs, homes, all of the spaces where usually refugee stories and voices are ignored and silenced and not let into so that was the main motivation behind it and as I was very lucky to have kind of a lot of time to be able to dedicate to to trying to make the book come to life during COVID and um, yeah managed to focus on that and then started working on it and and then here we are. Amazing what an achievement must be delighted. Yeah, it feels it feels good for it to be added into the world and to be able to kind of hold something that I, I think shows a very different side of Kelly, especially, you know, sometimes I, I always say I started the project in 2019 and to be honest with you, 
the situation has only gone worse, not only in the UK, but I would argue worldwide. So it feels like a big achievement to still be able to bear witness and, and really create a permanent collection of what is happening there because it, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere, unfortunately. Tell us a bit more, if you will, about how you got involved initially. What was the initial spark that sort of made you go to the camps and get involved? Yeah, so in 2018, I had some time before starting my master's. Um, I was based here in London already, and um, I was living with my parents, and I was talking about it a lot, and I'm half French, and I always thought, I take the Eurostar to go to France all the time, and it's so easy, and I always pass by Kelly, and I don't even think about it, and um, I have a French passport, which allows me to go pretty much anywhere in the world. And I was talking a lot about it with my mom and with people in my life, and no one really knew what was actually happening, right? Because everything we were getting was from politicians and mainstream media. And, and, I, and I always say that actually was, I wanted to help, but it was curiosity out of uh, more than anything that pushed me to want to go. So I was talking about it with my mom and she was like, let's go, like, let's go, why not? Um, let's just go down for two weeks and volunteer and see what happens. So that was the main motivation really, was wanting to find out for myself and to really... I, I couldn't believe, to be honest with you, naively, that this was happening in France. I was like, surely not. Like, this is not possible. We're in Europe. It's a safe, fair country. I say that in inverted commas. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And 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 that was what pushed me to go. And then I was there for the first time for two weeks. And then I came back and I thought, oh, I don't think I can look away from this. I don't think I can just put it away in a box and move on. Um, and that's what motivated me to continue to go back and and, and then to work on, on this project to share what I was experiencing there. And how many times have you been back since? So I haven't been back actually in a while now. I haven't been back since COVID. Um, a lot has changed. And I the conversations that I gathered um, in the recent years have been from current and past volunteers that are there. So I haven't been back. I think I will be back. Um, at some point this summer Um, but I've been focusing so much on this project and I I work full-time now so it's a bit trickier to go back and always for me I really wanted to focus on bringing this book to life which has taken about a year and a half and I always say when I'm in Kelly I I don't work on this I'm a volunteer it's much more valuable for me when I'm there to distribute Mm. clothes and tents and food so now that I feel like okay this is happening I can probably go back and have the time to just be present there and, and not think about this for a while. And what was your experience of writing the book like? What what was hardest about it? I think there's a few things. So first of all, the book includes a collection of conversations, of photos, of posters, right? And we have collected more than 300 conversations. And I I couldn't include them all into the book. Uh, And some of them are quite similar, you know, so there was no need to include them all. But that was one of the really hard parts was deciding what to keep and what to not keep. Um, and narrowing it down so that it followed a story. So the conversations are set into different themes. So food and shelter, home and belonging, safety and freedom. So I pick conversations that fit into those themes that I hope really help show that there isn't one refugee story. There are so many different ones. And we're given, we're fed very classic stereotypes of refugees as villains and refugees as victims and refugees as heroes. And some those are some of the stories, but there's also so many others. Um, so to me, it was really important to pick a lot of the stories that were maybe a bit boring and a bit relatable and about, our, about conversations that we would be having off screen, you know. So 
about the food being too salty or like a pair of shoes being too tight or the weather being annoying when it's raining for days. So it was really about including those kind of voices. So it was hard to decide what to keep and what not to keep. And then I would say the the second thing is because alongside um, these conversations, I picked eight contributors to write essays that related to those themes. And that was extremely hard because there are so many incredible people that have lived experience or that have worked in the refugee space for so long. I would have loved to include because there's so many different perspectives, again, that are needed. So also working on, on, on curating and selecting those contributors was really hard because I would have wanted to have probably 30, um, but I had to narrow it down to eight. So I think, yeah, making sure that I was covering so many different themes and so many different types of stories was important, but ultimately I'll never be able to tell every story, you know? So I guess kind of having that balance and having enough and not too much and, and, and showing diversity in that way. And is it hard to sit with that truth of not being able to tell everyone's story? Because what really struck me when I was reading through the book again yesterday, which I think is so beautiful and so moving and I have a direct connection to this cause because my mum without going into a lot of detail was a child refugee mm. and I can really see the kind of compassion in the way the book is curated and put together and also the way in which you tell stories and you hold space for these stories it must be a really hard decision to make when you're designed simply because of space I can't tell everyone's story here yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you for for sharing that um, the My story pleasure. about your mom. That that's I'm glad she's made it and she's here. Um, and uh, yeah, it is it is hard to be honest because I don't have lived experience, right? Like as I said, I have a French passport and and I can go pretty much anywhere into the world. So a lot of this project, to be honest with you, started with a, from a feeling of guilt and a feeling of extreme kind of yeah, guilt for having so many privileges attached to my freedom. So then that obviously continued when I was working on the book because I thought, oh, there's so many stories that I, that I need to include that maybe don't usually make it into media. You know, the contributors that are in this book are people that are already telling their story and that that's how I know them. That's how I came across their work. But I know there's so many people that simply don't have the resources to tell their story at all. And I, and I haven't had any contact. So, yeah, it is hard. And also what is hard, I think, is the, the asylum-seeking system and processes are changing so quickly all the time. So also, you know, the things that we're talking about right now, this was published in June already this week we voted for well I, I wouldn't say we <laughs> a new immigration bill has gone through and is going to become legislation that will change a lot of things right so yes some of these themes will continue but a lot of it will, will be outdated in a way so that's always something that I, that I'm always wary of and that's why I always say to me this book is an introduction it's the beginning right it's snippets of conversations it's snippets of um, moments. I'm not retelling anyone's refugee story. That's that's not my role, and that's not, that I will never be able to do that. And I never want to do that. For me, it's a little introduction into this topic, and then I hope people start engaging with material, whatever it is, whether it's a book or a movie or a show, whatever, by someone with lived experience. Um, that's my ideal uh, journey for people. 
And when you were writing the book, was there anything which surprised you? I think for me, it surprised me how I remembered so clearly a lot of these conversations. So, you know, I started the project a year after going to Calais. So I had written them down in diaries and notebooks and sketchbooks that I kept when I was there and then revisited them, right? And that's how I I based some of the first conversations of the project from those conversations that I had written down. And I've had so many, you know, like you have conversations with, with everyone that you meet ultimately, but I have such vivid images of people's faces and of their voices and of those moments in my head that are still still with me years and years later. So I think it really surprised me that I, I still had such a connection to those people, even if sometimes I met them very, very briefly and had a very, you know, small encounter over some food or over them, handing them a hoodie or a tent or wherever it was. So that really surprised me. But in a way, I think makes sense because it's, you're meeting people that, that are in such vulnerable, vulnerable and difficult situation that, having a connection with someone then can be really, really powerful, even if it's a very, a very short one. But it's amazing because I think that comes across in when you read the book. You, Not that I've been to Calais in the way that you have, but you can visualise these stories because you have told them and you said this and you said that. And mm-hmm. That was the interaction we had. And so the vision in, in my head as I was reading through it was one of, you know, walking through having these conversations, interactions over giving food out, whatever it might be, that that really came across to me. That's incredible. And you know what I love about this is because when I was working on the proposal of the book, a lot of people told me, oh, but you're going to need images of refugees. You're going to need photos of Calais. You're going to need to show what it looks like because otherwise people are not going to be able to relate to any of this, right? And this whole project to me from the beginning, I have always said, I do not want any images I mean, there's photos, but it's photos of the posters. I mean, no photos of people. And that's really important because we're bombarded constantly with photos and videos and illustrations of what a refugee looks like, what an asylum seeker should look like, what people invading our borders look like. And we're filled with these images that just create these stereotypes, but don't make us look at people as individuals and as humans. So what I want for the reader is to read and to imagine them as a volunteer, and then to imagine those faces and and those people by themselves. So I think, I mean, it's so nice to hear that. And I hope that's something that uh, more people experience as they read it. I hope so. And it ties nicely to this, because I was going to say, I didn't didn't know whether to to read this bit or to ask you to read it, but I've just highlighted something. And it was in um, Nish Kumar gave you Mm -hmm. an essay. Yes. um, Who I think is probably the, the most well-known of the people that contributes to the book. Yeah. Um, you know, very much in the public consciousness. And there was just one aspect of what he wrote in here. Uh, and I thought, shall I read it out? Is that the best thing to do? Yes, I would love that. And it just really hits home with that that comment that as you read it, bringing it to life in your own way, but my own reflections on this were, were sort of uh, quite powerful. So I, I highlighted this anyway. It says, Anyone's circumstances can change suddenly and uncontrollably. So perhaps in the future, if you see someone living on the street or desperate people seeking refuge in a different country, instead of assuming they are only there as a result of poor decision-making, consider that things may have happened that were out of their control. For years, we were told that people on unemployment benefits were simply lazy. Then suddenly the entire country was unable to work and needed assistance. Things can happen. Lives can change in an instant. 
start from that assumption when you interact with the world. And I think that for me, given what we've all been through with COVID, was a real sort of moment where I got the the post-its out and said, that's the, you know, the comment so far, and there were more in the book, but that was the comment from the beginning that really just made me think, you know, this is so true that we are all just one decision, one accident, one step, one wrong move, or a right move, perhaps, away from real change like this. And and how can we sort of judge others based on um, how they're dealing with that change that's coming and impacted into their lives? Absolutely. Thank you for reading that. Um, And I think, you know, what we also always forget is, like, exactly like you said, it's only one change away and one move away, one accident away. But also, there's so much of those that we don't control, right? So the reason that you that us three are sitting here in front of a screen in a safe home in three safe homes is a matter of luck and you know you there's no there's no difference between me and a refugee the only difference the main difference is that I was born on a side of the world at a time where there wasn't a war or where I didn't have to flee because of my safety or because of my happiness or whatever reason I had so I think that's something that's so important to to remember when we're constantly portrayed images of Refugees are people that are worlds apart from us and that are completely different from us. Yes, they have a very, very, very different journey and life experience, but it it was just a matter of luck. It could have been us in that boat. It could have been us on that journey. It could have been us in a detention center down the road. So yeah, that's something I really want people to remember. And that's a really important learning, isn't it? Because I remember um, this was probably about a a year or two ago, Paul, we had uh, the CEO of Tech Refugees as a guest on this podcast. And he was talking about how there will be millions, if not billions of people uh, displaced over the next couple of decades due to climate change. And some of them might well be living quite privileged lives in countries that haven't previously been affected by the changes that can upend people's situations and mean that they need to flee so it could happen to any of us couldn't it yeah absolutely and I think you know it's great I think that you bring climate change and the link that does that has to displacement because I think we often feel like it will never happen to us um, and I think, you know, I don't actually think that we should operate thinking that we will have to seek asylum at some point because that would be extremely tiring to imagine your life like that every day and not very productive. However, I do think that it's very important to realize that climate change at the minute it, it is is hitting everywhere. Um, we've had the, we are having the hottest summer that Europe has ever experienced and we are seeing the effect that that has everywhere and it doesn't matter if you're from the West, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, it will it will affect us all. So I hope that motivates us to continue to put pressure on the systems that are causing climate change, that are causing people to not be able to seek safety once they are displaced and to really realize the links between everything that, that we're trying to fight against and that we're trying to mobilize against. Um, yeah, that is extremely, extremely important, I think. And what has the reaction to the book been like? It's been very, very positive, more, I guess, more positive than I ever thought it it, it would be. Um, I think, you know, it's always very hard to measure impact with this kind of project, right? Because ultimately, for me, success with this project and with this book is changing mindset, right? And it's getting people to view asylum seekers and refugees in a different way. And ultimately, hopefully, to then 
find ways to be able to be part of, of the refugee movement and, and work to defend um, refugee rights. But it's hard for me to know if that works. And it's hard for me to know how much the book is related to that and the work that I'm doing is related to that. However, I think having the book is a, is a really good way for me to enter spaces and, and, and then enable those conversations to happen. So, you know, I've done book events, I've done talks, I've done assemblies in schools. I've, I'm now using it to really have those conversations in person and to, to open up space to really ask questions and really wonder why, why we view refugees this way and why our government is going in this opposite direction or we can do about it. So yeah, the, the response has, has been incredible. And, and I think people ultimately are kind and open. It's just that most people don't have a connection to this issue and don't know how to go about it because it's it's huge, right? And the government wants us to be very divided about it and they want it to be confused and they scapegoat refugees constantly. So why wouldn't you see it that way, you know? So I think going in and saying, let's just have a conversation about it, um, for me, it is, is really important. And, and that has uh, been a response that people have wanted to have to the book. So I would call it, you know, success in that in that sense for me. And how was um, you said you've been into schools this week? So, what's the reaction like from from kids? What are they? What, how do they think of this? Yeah. So th- this was one of the things I wanted to do the most, and it was also one of the things I was the most stressed about because I just didn't know how to ex- what to expect. But th- the reaction has been incredible. I, I went to a, a year five school last week and spoke to a class and. You know, obviously it's it's kids that are 9, 10, 11 years old. So I really tailor the conversation and it's really going in about, first of all, understanding what it means to be a refugee or an asylum seeker or a migrant and, and all of those words that we often don't even really understand truly. And then understanding just that ultimately it's just someone seeking home. And kids know the feeling of being homesick. They know the feeling of not being safe. They know all those things. So it's, opening up and and trying to make them understand what it may feel like in a way to have to seek asylum and then why we have to welcome people into our communities. And kids are so smart. Kids are way smarter than we think. I mean, the questions that they're asking are the same questions that I get asked on Sky News. It is the same. It's just worded with different words. But ultimately, you know, they were asking me things that related to are we able to help refugees if we're not able to help, for example, homeless people here? They were asking about how we can help if a lot of people at the top in our governments are not allowing them as kids to vote or to do to, to get involved in a lot of those things, right? So the conversations that I'm having with kids and adults are the same. We're all having the same questions and the same worries, but kids are much more frank about it and they don't have a filter right so it's great because also I'm so tired of speaking with adults who feel like it's a stupid question or feel like they need to know more and I get that as well about a lot of topics that I'm not an expert in so it's about removing those filters and I really want us to operate more as kids and not be afraid to ask the questions and have the conversations and and do all that Um, so yeah I will be continuing to do that in September and my goal is for this book to be in every school library in, in school in the UK. I think that would be incredible and something that I will continue working on. 
Yeah, it's great you're doing that. Um, it reminds me if I went into uh, a school a few weeks ago to talk about inclusion mm-hmm. and uh, there were a couple of kids there who were refugees. They were refugees mm-hmm. from, from the Ukraine and it was really interesting to to hear their experience. Yeah, I hope that a refugee in a school picks up this book and says, oh, like, you know, I'm allowed to be in the school. I'm allowed to be in this space. And my story is also being told in, in, in the school library and, it, and is involved in that because how many books in school libraries are about this issue and are about this topic and are about these experiences? I would say not many if we were to count them. So I hope, I hope that it is impactful and reassuring for a kid who has the experience to see a book and say oh I can be in this space you know and and there's stories like this that are printed and that are worth telling and listening to and and reading about. I think it's also useful as an exercise in art as well isn't it it's in the the presentation of this material in a in a different way and we're constantly sort of you know, Zoe and I work in a world that's full of uh, PowerPoint presentations and sort of you know really boring storytelling. But the the sort of the art of turning something that is a conversation into something that is visual and arresting and holds the attention, I think, is is just you know from that perspective alone, it deserves to be in school. So how how do we go about helping you to to do that? How can people get involved and make sure that they petition their local schools to get a copy for the library? So there's two ways about it. Um, either you can request, you know, send an email. I always find it's always good to find a person in a school that is maybe interested in the topic or is already kind of um, intrigued and then just say, I would love for us to have this book in the school library and then they can order it from any bookshop um, or just getting in touch with me and then I can, you know, send me an email um, and then I can get in touch with them and, and, and help it that way. I also think in some schools you can donate books. So I guess it would also mean, you know, if a parent were to buy it and then give it to the kids' um, school library. I'm, I'm seeing a bit of a sub line for us here, Zoe, that we start at the top podcast will just start donating books because I've um, been in touch with uh, my sons. My sons are going to both be going to the same school from September. Um, but I've been in touch. We we interviewed um, Somasara who was the um, founder of Everyone's Invited, which is um, a a movement about um, victims of misogyny and um, unwanted sexual behaviour and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I'm still waiting on my response from the school, but I emailed three or four of the teachers to say, I'd like to donate some some books. So I can see us getting to a situation, Zoe, where we're interviewing people on the podcast, buying vast quantities of their books, if we can, and then donating them to local local schools but we'll let you know whether we have any success in getting some books yes into, please do please do schools. i can i can email as well and add some pressure <laughs> yeah. no it's important i think as, as well you know as, i think the the important thing for me with the with the somasara book and the important thing with this is the the very thought that i know i know that my um, my sons have have friends that will be from either from refugee families or from uh, second generation refugee families. And, and it's that it's being able to walk into the library and see something that represents you. And I think that's really, really crucial and important, which is why I think this is alongside Samsara book is another one that deserves to have pride of place in, in local libraries and kids libraries. Yeah, thank you. That means a lot. So you mentioned earlier on that there are people from all walks of life. We talked about displacement and these are, 
I think sometimes it's really easy for us to sort of um, dehumanise this issue, isn't it? We sort of think about the vast numbers of people and we actually we stop thinking about the individuals. And I think that was really the case when uh, for, for some of the sort of stories that you hear in the press. But I think the, the war in Ukraine has really started to make us think differently about that. We've opened up our houses and homes in many instances to people from those countries and then being able to hear firsthand the stories of these people that have been displaced and and are trying to find their way. And I guess what it made me start to think about is um, the move to help skilled workers or skilled people from countries who are seeking refuge on our shores into the workplace. And I just wondered whether whether there was any any sort of sense that you had from your discussions with people in the camps about their aspirations to not just get to our shores, but you know what they could do when they get here and contribute and, and the lives that they want to, to sort of rebuild around around something as that we take for granted, like work. Thank you for bringing that up because I think um, is first of all, it's very important to remember that um, people that come here have usually had lives before being refugee and being a refugee doesn't mean that your whole life and your whole story is being a refugee that's usually a a small part of your life hopefully if you have a long life um where that is your status and that is what you're focused on but it's just a season it's just an episode in your life and that means that most people come and have been to university or have worked or have been to school and have so many different professions I mean I met people that had so many different professions in Calais or even here now that I do um kind of volunteering work here so I think it's important to remember that because sometimes people think um we fall into that like rhetoric of people coming here to steal our jobs and just want our benefits and all of that that's really not the case and following up from that I think you know once you're here once you're in the UK and you're seeking your asylum so you've sent your application um which by the way at the minute is taking about a year to be processed. So that means that someone is waiting more, usually a year or more to have their refugee status. People are not allowed to work in that time. You can apply for a work permit, but it's very rare that people get it. So that means that in the whole time, you're dependent of very, 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 very little money from the government. Um, and you're, you're not allowed to work, which is completely ridiculous because people are have skills and um, jobs that we, we, you know, we also have here and, and could utilize here. And it also means that you have no, it's very hard to find a purpose and to have, you know, a way to kind of feel like you're contributing to society here. And every single person that I've met here says, I wish I could work. I don't want to be depending of these benefits, not that they're very good benefits, but I want to be able to give back and, and, and to work. So it's really important that we keep pushing, um, for our governments to allow people to work and to get people to be able to work quicker as they're waiting for their asylum claim. And also in terms of there are organizations. So once you've got your your application approved and, and that you have your refugee status, there's so many organizations that work to get refugees and asylum seekers in different workplaces, right? To obviously adapt their skills or work in their field still, but obviously in some different ways. In the same way that if I went to work I don't know, in Portugal, I, I would have to change some of the ways that I work, right? Um, 
But that is so positive. Like, it's so positive to be able to say that our workplaces are more and more diverse and more and more inclusive and allow to have also people with completely different lived experience. That is such a strength for any business, even if you think about it just in terms of being a successful business and not being like a good business or a business with a conscience. So I think we should really keep pushing for that. And if you're if you do work somewhere, it doesn't even have to be about employing someone, but it could be starting work experiences for asylum seekers. It could be, you know, showing someone the way that if I don't know if you're working in, in, in tech, for example, the way that things are done here or the software that you use here. How can we make sure that as individuals we're allowing people to kind of be able to once they're able to enter the workforce and be able to apply for employment? to be ready and to be in in spaces that are inclusive. I think that is so valuable and something that we can all do in small ways, no matter what field we we work in. I think you're exactly right. And I was um, proud to work for for Grant Thornton for so many years. Grant Thornton, an accountancy firm, and one of the things I remember um, them doing, I remember sitting in in one of our offices one day when they were bringing, they brought in a whole group of, of of refugees skilled refugees i think accountants lawyers doctors i mean there were just so so much there's so much uh, on offer in the room and i just um will point towards it on the in the show notes with a couple of really sort of good stories on their website of of uh employees that have come from from that background who have been given that opportunity and they're not the only organization there will be many more out there and i know uh, one organisation I'm working with has actually just started a sponsorship programme for people from overseas as well. So we should put some information in the show notes for organisations that we work with and who listen to the podcast to, to be able to find out how they can go about doing those sorts of things. Yes, amazing. Please do. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Matilda. This has been fascinating your book is just wonderful and will stay with me for a very long time especially the essays and the phenomenal way in which you've brought together all these stories of refugees and we wish you well and we'd love to hear how the project develops thank you so much that means a lot and yeah I will I will definitely keep you keep you updated and also really appreciate using your platform to have this kind of conversation and to shed light on it it's our pleasure it's our pleasure Our thanks to Matilda for her time and contribution to the podcast. It was great talking to her. Conversations from Calais is published by Wellbeck Balance and is out now. We'll share a link to where you can buy it in the show notes. Our next episode is going to be next week and is going to be with Samuel Kasumu, who's one-time advisor to Boris Johnson and author of The Power of the Outsider. You can support the podcast by leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to us, whether Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google. Thank you for listening and bye for now. Thank you. And until next time.